0: I'm standing in John Muir Woods, a forest of redwood trees that lies just north of the city of San Francisco. There's a lot to see here. The trees are over 100 feet tall, and you feel very young and tiny in their shadows. You also feel very in awe. I wasn't the only one who felt this way.
1: You know, it's a sacred place for me.
0: (laughs) It's a pretty incredible place, but what really strikes you is the sweet, sweet smell of the
1: air. Okay, the aroma here kind of caught my, my uh, interest because it was familiar to me, the smell of the bay leaf, and I was so curious. And then I broke the leaf and I said, it's a lot stronger. I didn't realize the other species and the ones that we use in the Philippines or commonly used all over the world as a, a spice, it relates you about home. And then when you, when you just first came here, You know, you miss home and then when you smell the familiar smell, aromas, and then the plants, the diversity of the plants that exist where you also came from and grew up. I came here when I was 22. Then, you know, that missing of home kind of get a little bit relieved and soothing to be here.
0: This is the second episode of Neutral Grounds, I'm Shirley Wang. Being in the Bay Area means that people are from all over the world, from places like the Philippines. When this visitor described her experience to me, it felt like she was writing herself as a character in the story of the park. Her story would have been very different had she come to the park back when it was founded. The man who gifted this park to the government had some very, let's say, strong opinions about immigrants and Asian people in general.
2: Okay, so my name is Elaine Ellenson and I do research on civil rights history for the National Park Service.
0: Elaine was assigned to research the founder of the John Muir Woods. His name was William Kent. He was also a U.S. congressman for seven years.
2: And um, there was a poster a campaign poster uh that one of the rangers had found and had um shared with me and it said how william kent vote for william kent uh because he has definitely made his stand against japanese immigration and i thought wow what is this this is a, a quite a different kind of william kent than you know all the um praises and articles had been about him. And I was really sort of curious because this is a very important part of California national history. Um, the anti-Orientalist movement it was called, so the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, the alien land law, and all of the you know measures against um, Asian immigrants. Elaine
0: then contacted the Archival History at Yale University and they sent her transcripts of
2: his speeches in Congress. And when. When we got them, I was just amazed, shocked, and appalled by the content of what was in there, because there were some of the most vicious, racist, vitriolic speeches against immigration, and particularly immigration from China and Japan, that I had seen. One of his most um, vitriolic speeches was right here in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club when he was running for the Senate in 1920, Um, when he was really adamant about why he thought um, Chinese and Japanese immigrants and Hindu immigrants, as he called them, should not be coming to this country. And it was um, talking about he didn't think that the races should be mixed. Um, He talked about how um, Japanese were good at picking strawberries because they were built low to the ground. I mean, it was really quite shocking material, but it was absolutely his words
0: preservation for all people to enjoy, yada yada yada, fun times were had by all. Uh, This is a ranger at the John Muir Woods. He says he's glad this story has surfaced. My hope is that people would try and take ownership of the park then. When I initially heard this story, because I come from a similar background of not having access to parks, that's why it affected me so much, I was angry. And I really wanted to go out there and show everyone, like, yeah, like, this is my park. I belong here. I deserve this much, just as much as anyone else. I want to take care of it. And I want to preserve it for all future generations, communities, people, again, no matter their
3: backgrounds.
0: As part of their wide-sweeping diversity efforts, the National Park Service is hoping to get people to reclaim the parks. But a coup costs money and time. As a second generation Chinese American person myself, I would love to prove that despite Will Kent's racist sentiments, I can still be an important person in this park. One weekend, I decided to travel out to John Muir Woods. This park is under the jurisdiction of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which is a faction of the National Park Service. It prides itself for being an overseer of parks tailored for urban city dwellers. The Park Service wanted to hold natural spaces amid skyscrapers and traffic flows in heavily populated areas. Out of the parks run by the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, the John Muir Woods is one of the most difficult places to get to. It's tucked away in the valleys of Marin County. The roads leading up to the park are long and winding, teetering on the edge of the mountain. The first time I went out there to do this research, because I didn't have a car, And because I have a thing about driving on cliffs, I took the bus from downtown San Francisco. Now, it's great that the Park Service has a bus going out to the woods, but it took five hours to get up there and back. By contrast, it takes about three to four hours to get from San Francisco to Yosemite National Park with a car. Altogether, the bus trip cost $22 per person. Now the next time I went to the John Muir Woods, my friend brought a car and offered to drive me on a Tuesday afternoon. When we got to the parking lots, however, we saw that they were all full and so was the lot just down the street. It was to the point that people started parking along the edges of the road. I took out my phone to see where else we could park, but there wasn't any cell service in the area of the hills. We drove back into the city where I was able to make a phone call to the park info desk, and they sent me to a place in the city where a park shuttle could pick me and other visitors up. We drove to the address we were given, found a spot in the parking lot of a lawn furniture store, and waited.
3: The internet's telling me we're in the right spot.
0: Okay, did you look on the map?
3: I looked on the map, so <laughs> I think we're doing the best we can with the resources available to us.
0: By then, what was supposed to be a 40-minute ride turned into three hours of circling around Marin County. In the end, the shuttle never ended up coming. We had gotten the date wrong, it seemed. We were lucky we had sandwiches to finish up the day.
3: Wait, we have food.
0: <gasps> Wait, yeah, should we just like, like have we our picnic instead? Right Getting to that park was not easy even though we had all sorts of tools to help us along the way. We had an iPhone with data and Google Maps, we had a car with enough gas, we could all speak English and ask questions, and we had no other obligations that day, no job to get to. But why was it so hard and expensive to get to a place that is supposed to be public? How much time do people actually have to deal with these frustrations? How many experiences like these does someone have to have before deciding that it's too much effort? In the news that's come out recently, it's clear the National Park Service faces a terrible reality. The president put out a budget plan for 2018 that cuts the federal funding for the Interior Department by $1.6 billion. In response, the National Park Service has proposed raising their entrance fees to sites like Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon. When the National Park Service is financially pressed, things like environmental protection become prioritized and low-income families are made into an afterthought. But the Golden Gate National Recreation Area has different intentions in mind.
3: It is a uh, agency-wide mission to create social change, um, create social environmental change, um, promoting social social justice. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is because we keenly understand the community we serve, uh, particularly the one that we call it underserved communities um, in this urban surrounding.
0: This is Kay Wang, the community outreach supervisor for the park.
3: It's really impossible for us to go to them, say, hey, just come to the park, you know, have fun and get recreational, you know, we can't really do that. So in my ideal world, the number one thing is that all the transit system, can be on board and made all the parts that absolutely accessible to anybody.
0: Kay's vision for accessibility is multi-pronged. First, she feels people need to be able to physically get to the park. Right.
3: So they feel like on that level, we're equal. We're equal with everyone. If I don't have a car, I can go. Okay, so we don't have to rely on budget and transportation money. Second,
0: she says there has to be signage, brochures and information in multiple languages.
3: So make everybody feel welcome and feel included. Okay, that's that just goes without saying.
0: And lastly, the staff have to be people who are committed to cultural competency and reflect diversity themselves. Right.
3: So to get a little early stage understanding about this person's um, um, understanding, exposure or um, the willingness, the passion, you can you can really get it right. Mm -hmm. And when the staff is have that real personal uh, connection with this topic, you can really tell by how they answer it.
0: As many park employees in this site tell me, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area is run quite differently within other parks in the U.S. because of their metropolis location and because of their already diverse surrounding population. They see their organization as one that even sets examples of better management, park policies, and hiring practices. However, more could be said about how this actually is going. Just within the same recreation area park staff, for example, I talked to employees of color who said they felt that the workplace was not yet a comfortable space for them. One person told me that he was told to lead a tour for Spanish-speaking guests and was paired with another Latino ranger. The people in charge didn't realize that that ranger didn't even know how to speak Spanish. Another person told me that she tried to start a conversation with park visitors only to be told by her supervisor that she was being too political. Many of these rangers remained anonymous because they were worried about job security. In the current system, it's incredibly difficult to become a permanent park ranger. You have to get experience through years of volunteering, interning, and temporary positions. For one employee I talked to, it took years of moving around to different parks and waiting for jobs to open up. It was incidences like these that show that the Golden Gate National Recreation Area still has a long way to go. After all, like we saw in the first episode of this series, they have decades of a troubled legacy to turn over. The Park Service needs radical shifts, and that shift cannot happen without addressing park culture. So, on the next episode of Neutral Grounds, we attuned to a different angle of the issue. One park ranger told me that he felt uncomfortable bringing up the prejudices of park founders like William Kent to environmentalists who were white male leaders of the park administration. In practice, environmentalist culture can be pretty diehard. Park rangers are often furiously patriotic and dedicated to their job as they come from generations so of families who have ingrained in them the love for the great outdoors.
1: Ranger, who wears the gray and green?
0: We bleed green and gray, the colors of the park ranger uniform, is a common motto within the park service. So for the last part of this series, we turn our attention to the ways that this intense culture tells certain people that they don't belong. We look at how people have subverted the nature-loving identity. I'm a Melissa. I don't eat hummus. (laughs) This has been Neutral Grounds. Thanks for listening.